Corinthians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me. Can we bump that back to verse 25? Is that hard to do? I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, down to the end of the chapter. In this passage, in the book of Ephesians, which is a magnificent letter, um, where the Apostle Paul has been pouring out his heart, his understanding of the mysteries of God, of how God is working in the world, and uh, um, God's purposes of gathering together a body of people called the church to be the bride and the, um, the bride of his son as well as the body of his son. And in this passage, he is taking the implications of that and applying it to Christians, to people in the church. And he gives very specific and practical instructions. Verse 25 says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour. Why? For we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God has forgiven you clear passage, isn't it? Practical instruction from the Apostle Paul to believers in the church in Ephesus, if not in the region surrounding Ephesus, about how they, as followers of the Lord Jesus, are to have their lives transformed, changed. There are things to stop doing and there are things to start doing. And in the midst of all of that instruction, there is this phrase in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It seems that In the Apostle Paul's mind, the ministry and presence of the Spirit is central. It's in the forefront of his mind as he considers the practical implications of this. We have been considering over previous week who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Let me remind you very, very quickly. Who is he? He's one of the members of the Trinity. And I'm reminding you of things that I expect and understand that many of you already know and embrace. But it's good to be reminded There is only one God, but that one God exists in three persons. The Holy Spirit is not almost God. He's not similar to God. He is God. He has all the attributes of God. Everything you can say about God, you can say about the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he is to be honoured and obeyed. Because he is God, therefore, because he indwells believers, he is God within us. Our bodies, therefore, are temples of the Holy Spirit. He is heaven's royalty dwelling within, a royal guest in residence in his earthly palace. The Spirit of God is a person. He's not a vague, impersonal force or an influence or an it. person with intellect, emotions and a will. He is exactly like the Father in Jesus in personality, 
He is a divine person, an eternal member of the Trinity or the triune being. What does he do? He does what the Father and the Son do. They work together. He is co-creator of the world, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. He is the co-creator of humankind, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He also made the animals. He created rest. He made the body for the Lord Jesus. He gave us our new natures in Christ. He's the creator of the church and he is the inspirer of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's the Spirit of God who was involved with rulers and kings, with judges and prophets. He was involved in empowering even builders, craftsmen, to build the tabernacle and the temple. In the Old Testament, words are used like he comes upon, he moves, he enters, he fills. He's active, he was active in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna and John the Baptist, all of the people around the Christmas story. He was actively involved. He's very closely associated with the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. The Lord Jesus taught about him, prophesied about him, prayed for him to come. And in fact, the Lord Jesus is the one who imparts or gives us the Spirit, his Spirit. The Lord Jesus prepared the way for the coming of the Spirit. The Lord Jesus received the Spirit in order to give him to us. The Spirit witnesses Jesus' exaltation, testifies about Jesus and glorifies him. The Holy Spirit is essential to us, for us to live the Christian life. The Bible teaches us that he is the one who convicts of sin, judgment, of righteousness. He is the one who illumines people in a dark world. He is the one who calls, converts, we're born of the Spirit. He is the one who baptises us into the body of Christ. He transforms believers into the image of Christ. That's all his work. Even our mission statement, to work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus, is the work of the Spirit. That's what he does. He reigns within, he fills. And he walks with believers through each day in experience. That includes helping us in praying, reading the Bible, providing peace in our hearts, as well as prompting us, nudging us to do God's will. He manifests the character of Jesus. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. He equips us for service in the body, the gifts of the Spirit, and he empowers us for witness in the world. He is the Lord of the harvest. We can't be saved without the Spirit. We can't have assurance without the Spirit. We can't be holy without the Spirit. We can't understand the Bible without the Spirit. We can't pray without the Spirit. We can't serve without the Spirit. We can't witness without the Spirit. He is essential for us in living the Christian life of following the Lord Jesus. In summary, he he permanently enters believers' lives. He powerfully equips. He personally encourages. He is our advocate, our helper, our counsellor, our comforter. He is the Lord within the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. He's not a second blessing and he's not an optional extra. All of these things we have been teaching you over the recent weeks. So we come to our final one today. And any teaching to do with the Holy Spirit would be incomplete if attention were not called to the fact that his influence can be impeded in our lives. Spiritual power can be lost as remarkable as that is. He is sovereign Lord, all-powerful, but he can be hindered, resisted, frustrated. In the Old Testament, 
things are different now. But in the Old Testament, you get the strange but very sad story of uh, several characters, but one is Samson, who had great opportunities, who had great talents given to him, but whose life ends in a tragic failure, all because of his own inexcusable folly, choices that he had made. And the Spirit of the Lord, the passage says, came upon him and empowered him. But you also read that very sad phrase three times. He did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had left him. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon, fill, empower, and depart again, leave again in the Old Testament. Same happened in Saul's life, and even David in Psalm 51 can pray, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's Old Testament. And the coming of the Lord Jesus with the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, he now is a permanent resident with us. He does not leave, he does not depart. But we'll talk about some other variation of that. Does God still depart his people? No. But certainly it seems like it on occasions, doesn't it? Does he withdraw a sense of his presence? Yes. Can we lose the Holy Spirit in our the power of the Spirit in our life and in our ministries? Can we lose his power? Yes. How? Well, through hindrances that I'm going to talk about this morning. If you lose it or if you've lost it, his influence, his empowering. Can you regain it? Usually. Not always. But usually. What are those hindrances then or those sins against the Spirit? What are those things that we as followers, as believers, can be involved in which leads to a decrease in spiritual influence in our lives? The New Testament, and I'm going to talk about some of these more tonight than this morning. The New Testament uses these six different ways of sins that we can commit against the Spirit. There is this very strange one, and we're doing this tonight because I don't have time this morning, called blasphemy against the Spirit. It's the unforgivable sin. It's the only sin which is not forgivable. It's quite strange. And we're going to talk about that tonight. So blasphemy against the Spirit, committed by unbelievers, not by believers. We can resist the Spirit, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Again, unbelievers, not believers, resisting the Spirit. Ephesians 4, this one, you can grieve the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, you can quench the Spirit. They're the two primary ones of grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit for believers. Grieving the Spirit is when we do something that we ought not to do, we grieve him. Or quenching is he wants us to be doing something and we're sort of toning it down and not doing what he wants us to do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 talks about insulting the Holy Spirit, or in fact the Greek word can be uh, translated to outrage, to infuriate the Spirit. And again, unbelievers doing that. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, strange story of Ananias and Sapphira, where Peter says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. So all of these sins, blasphemy, resisting, grieving, quenching, insulting and lying to, are ways that the Bible talks to us about how we can influence the Spirit in a negative way to impede his influence in our life. So this morning I want to talk about how do we grieve the Spirit, and there are three ways, three ways that I'm going to suggest anyway to you this morning. What happens when we do grieve him? What are the consequences in our life when that happens? And that would be good for us to evaluate where we're at. And then, so what can we do so that we don't grieve the Spirit? So I want to focus primarily this morning obviously upon grieving the Spirit and it'll be very similar to quenching. So tonight we'll do the others, particularly blasphemy, and a little bit of quenching, um, and I might just repeat for three minutes what I say this morning for those who are not here this morning. 
So number one, the Holy Spirit has been given to us, indwells us if we are believers. We need to clearly understand and accept that. Romans 8 verse 9 says, no one who is a Christian, uh, no one is a Christian unless the Holy Spirit is in them. Paul in fact says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to him. It is impossible for us to be followers of Jesus, believers in him and not to have the Spirit. He's, as I said before, he's not an optional extra. He's not for the elite. He's not just for pastors or missionaries or, you know, Bible study leaders or ministry leaders. He's for all believers. He is in all of us if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says the same thing, that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is within. He is in us, which we have from God, and therefore we have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Apostle Paul says, it's this truth, I think, the indwelling spirit, which is motivating the Apostle Paul to expand that in Ephesians 4 about this conduct. Because he is within us, this is how we therefore ought to live. Before I get on to the mechanics of how do we grieve the spirit, there is a huge theological debate that's been going on for centuries. For the first 19 centuries, theologians and even Commentators into this century will argue the Holy Spirit does not have emotion, that he can't be grieved, that when it says he don't grieve the Holy Spirit, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit, it's talking about us. Well, I'm much simpler in my theology than some of those great theologians. And in my simplicity, when it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, to me it means you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I understand that does raise huge theological problems, but I didn't write the Bible. He did. And so I am just being obedient as I understand it to him. I'm not wanting to be arrogant or smart or anything like that. But I am wanting to emphasise that the Spirit of God has emotions and that he loves, he can be angered, he can be hurt, he can be disappointed... I don't understand fully how that manifests. I just understand from this text of Scripture and those other references that it's about relationship. That just like the Lord Jesus came into the world and dwelt in a body, so the Holy Spirit has also subordinated himself and limited himself, has come in and dwelt in a body, in our bodies, not just one, but all believers' bodies. And that that relationship is one of love. I know that's overused, that word, but that's what it is. It's about a relationship of tenderness, of intimacy, of grace. It's personal. And so therefore, when I sin, when we sin, we ought not to think just in terms of, oh, we have done wrong. We need to think in terms of that we have hurt and offended and disappointed the one who loves us and lives within us. There's been a hurt involved here. Christianity is about this intimate relationship with the living God. It's not a religion of rules, relationship. So therefore the Holy Spirit can be grieved and is grieved when we consciously, intentionally, with awareness, sin or offend or whatever. Okay, here we go. How do we grieve the Spirit? Well, there are three ways I'm going to suggest to you. The first one is the obvious one. Anything in which we do which is not holy grieves him. In other words, when we sin, whether it's in actions, when we do something wrong, 
or whether it's even in our words, as this passage says. It's not just our deeds, but it's also our words, which can offend him, grieve him. So it's our moral conduct as the context of this. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul gives strong language. He says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Listen to this. For the sinful nature, for the flesh, desires what is contrary to the Spirit. We naturally desire what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to our sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. And we end up doing things that we don't want to do. But if we are led by the Spirit, then we're no longer under law, Galatians 5, 16 and following. So anything that we do which is sinful, whether it's words, whether it's actions, that comes out of our flesh which is opposed to him, grieves him, disappoints him, And of course, by extension, there's another step. It's not just what we say, it's not just what we do, because it's quite possible for us, isn't it, that we can not do anything wrong, not say anything wrong, but we can sit there and just simply be thinking wrong. And in our imaginations, we can have all sorts of connotations or uh, imaginary conversations or imaginary behaviours where we not just imagine it, but we actually enjoy it. That likewise, at the level of our thoughts, nobody knows it, nobody sees us do it, nobody hears us say it, but he does because he is within. He hears, he sees and he knows all. Anything that is unworthy in our minds, impure thoughts, anger, revenge, envy, grieves him. I've used this illustration lots of times before, but it's a little bit like I'm not a great gardener. And we've just had a free ad for Kevin. We've just had Kevin Smith come around and do our front edges and lawns and he's helping us with our gardening. and He's doing an absolutely wonderful job. If you suck at gardening like I do, I commend Kevin Smith. Is Kevin here this morning? Cost you 50 bucks, mate, for that ad. <laughs> there are many other gifted gardeners in the church and I'm sure they would help you too, but... That guy helped us and is helping us. And Anyway, point of the illustration. In the garden, there are those awful things called, and we're very good at growing them. <laughs> and what you notice when you walk out the front is we don't have any weeds in our garden right now because we've had Kevin around. When you walk out, you notice the big weeds, don't you? You don't notice the little weeds, you notice the big ones. This is my experience anyway. And so you bend down and you take time and you pull out the big ones. As soon as you pull out the big ones, then guess what you notice? There are medium-sized ones there. I never saw them before. And you pull out the medium-sized ones, then guess what happens? Look at those little green shoots coming up and you pull it out. You don't even notice the little green shoots, you don't notice the medium ones, you notice the big ones. Well, it's a process like that of the Spirit of God working in us. He gets rid of the big, glaring sins, the obvious actions and words that everybody knows is not right. He got rid of the big ones. Now he's going to work on the medium ones. It's going to change the way you speak. It's going to change the way you think. 
And then it's even going to go down to even the little ones, the motivations and the attitudes of your heart. He will continue to work on you as you follow him to transform you into being a passionate follower of the Lord Jesus. So that's the first way. We grieve the spirit when we indulge the sinful nature, when we do things, say things, think things, which are not conforming to what he wants. R.A. Torrey wrote a book on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and he simply expands those sorts of ideas. Let me read that list really, really quickly to you. He says, here are the seven ways that we can decrease God's power in our life. Grieve the Spirit. Um, when people go back on their commitment to him, their separation to him, they are no longer consecrated or set apart to God, but they're worldly. He says they're like Samson who was listening to Delilah. The world is getting in and you're being seduced. He said, number two, when people disobey or allow sin to creep in, spoke about that one. He says, thirdly, self-indulgence, where we are no longer denying ourselves, but we are in fact gratifying the flesh. It's not necessarily sinful, but it's wasteful. It's overly luxurious. We are not being good stewards. And that's something you have to determine between you and God, not judge one another about between you and him. God sometimes might say to a rich jungler, take everything, sell it and give it all away to the poor. With somebody else like an Abraham, he might smother him with unbelievable wealth. Both are to be accountable stewards. One can't judge the other. But we, before God, must be faithful. He says, fourthly, greed for money. Number five, pride. He said, this is the most subtle one of all. Because as we are fully committed to God and serving him, it's so easy to get puffed up that God is using us and through that process, grieve the spirit. And he says, neglect of clear and neglect of the word. So all to be subsumed, really, it's a failure to abide in Jesus. It's to commit a sin, thought, word or deed. There are two other ways and time's going. That's why we have to go to 8.30, see, I told you. (laughs) The two other ways, firstly... It's a failure to realise or to acknowledge his presence within. We don't honour him and we're not aware of it. We we ignore him. We overlook his presence. We go through life as if he's not in the room. It's more of a subjective response, I guess, but I think it's very insulting to be ignored or to be overlooked. He is a gracious, willing guest. And he's not just any guest, he is a great person. He's divine, he's royalty. If we had, this might be a really bad illustration for you, but I think most of us would, if Julia Gillard was coming to your place for dinner, (laughs) I told you it was a bad illustration. (laughs) She's the prime minister of the country. Yeah, but we don't like it. All right, Tony Abbott then. (laughs) That is a bad illustration. If a person of dignity, of status, of significance, regardless of what you think, I don't like a lot of the things Julia Gillard is saying and doing, but we are responsible to pray for her and to respect her. She's because of her position, aren't we? Good. So if she was to come into your place for lunch, it might. the further I go in this illustration, the worse it's getting. <laughs> your behaviour would change, wouldn't it? You wouldn't say certain things. It is a bad illustration, isn't it? 
put in somebody that you highly respect and when they come you would be on your absolute best behaviour. You would uh, follow etiquette and you would watch your speech and things you would normally do you wouldn't do because the guest is there. So for us to ignore, to neglect, to overlook the presence of the Spirit of God within us is to slight him. To behave as if he wasn't who he is. Sovereign, Lord, God, holy. That grieves him. Third way. It's a failure to respond to his promptings. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to uh, apply the redemption that Jesus has purchased for us. And so his job is to work within us that which Jesus has purchased. And for us to fail to respond to his promptings, his nudges, he's going to help us work against the flesh and the sinful nature. And when we ignore that, when we don't obey those promptings, it grieves him. He is the one who will stimulate us to read our Bible. You might be watching TV or whatever you're doing, driving home from work or having a conversation with someone and you'll have this overwhelming sudden desire. I'm going to read the Bible. That's the Spirit of God at work. I need to pray. That's the Spirit of God at work. Uh, Promptings and nudges. I want you to stop this. I want you to leave here. I want you to go there. I want you to share this. He's the one who opens doors for us to witness. He is at work. It's all part of him working in us to help us become more like Jesus, transforming us. And for us not to respond to those promptings, to those whispers, to even postpone it, yeah, I'll do that, but later, is to fail to follow his lead is to grieve him. So we grieve him by anything that is not holy, thought, word or deed, a failure to acknowledge his presence and a failure to comply with his promptings. What happens when we do grieve the Holy Spirit? These things. These are the results of the consequences. There is, he doesn't leave us because he has promised and he is permanently with us. He is the seal of our salvation. The seal doesn't get broken and then fixed up again. It's, he is permanently present with us. But there is a loss of his gracious manifestations. He withdraws the sense of his presence. He is with us, but he is silent. You'll experience a decreasing sense of the reality that God loves you. You become more numb. You'll have a loss of your joy of salvation. There'll be less sense of self of assurance and less sense of peace. The Bible says that the spirit bears witness with our spirit. Well, he won't be. Because you have grieved him, because you have sinned against him, he will withdraw these blessings that are normal for us as we walk in obedience with him. We are still sealed, as I said, But the reality, the sense of his nearness is fainter. It fades. It may even have a sense of disappearing. He hasn't gone, but it can sure seem like it. You are not lost. You don't lose your salvation. But you no longer get those divine comforts, embraces, enfolded, those whispers that says, that's for you, or I love you. No leadings, promptings except for the ones that says, remember from where you have fallen, repent and return to your first love. That will become his agenda. When that happens, he allows the supremacy of the flesh to emerge because he wrestles against the flesh. And you will find that you have been left open to a spiritual attack. He is delivering you over the correction to bring you to your senses. He hasn't abandoned us. But he will discipline us. He will strike us. 
drive us to our knees, reveal to us again the Lord Jesus, who was our Saviour, who died for these sins that we are committing, who loves us, who wants to wash away our sin. And if we repent, return, confess and forsake, then once again the Spirit of God will smile upon us and will restore to us the joy and peace that comes with his presence. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says these words, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, for if you do, you will bring upon yourself grievous experiences and agonies of soul that you need never have had. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If you do, you will bring upon yourself grievous experiences and agonies of soul. What then are we to do? How do we make sure we don't grieve the Spirit? Well, here are some pretty practical suggestions. Um, Number one, remember and realise the Holy Spirit is within you. Remind yourself, I am a child of God. When you wake up in the morning, I don't know what you do, but I wake up usually and I say, good morning, Lord. I consciously, deliberately remind myself, and I think he does. I think he nudges me and reminds me that he is with me, that he lives in me. Secondly, talk to yourself. Wherever I go today, whatever I may do today, whatever may happen to me today, he is with me. I am to live my life consciously in his presence, my every thought, word and deed in his presence. He hears, he sees, he knows. Remind myself that he is with me. What a great privilege to have such an honoured guest living in us. And so therefore I want to be careful not to disappoint him. He has given to us to work out our salvation. So when he prompts me, I will obey. He's going to be preparing me, shaping me to be more like the Lord Jesus. I will comply. He wants to work through me, whether it's to serve or to share the gospel. I'm available. I will obey. I will comply. I am available. If we're going to experience the filling and the indwelling of the Spirit and walk in a way that doesn't grieve Him, then we need to be listening constantly to what He is saying, to what He's whispering, listening to His Word especially. And we may need even to go to Him and to ask intentionally, is there anything in my life, is there anything that is displeasing to you? And perhaps even at the end of the day, the best thing is to keep ongoing accounts, intimate, short accounts with Him. But if not, or maybe as well as, at the end of the day, conduct an inventory of that day. Talk to him. Is there anything I did today that grieved you? Is there anything I said today to somebody else which wasn't right that grieved you? Was there anything that I was entertaining in my mind that nobody else knows about that you know about and that's disappointed you? Are there any promptings that I haven't followed? Have I been... You know, a tendency to put things off. Am I not obeying you? What about my attitudes and my relationships with others? Let this old hymn be our prayer. Today, this week, and moving forward. O give me Samuel's ear, an open ear, O Lord, alive and quick to hear each whisper of your word, and like him to answer to your call, and to obey you first of all. Oh, give me Samuel's ear. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for salvation through Jesus. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit to indwell us. And as we have been focusing this morning, Lord, there have been times when we have grieved and disappointed him. We ask, Lord, that you might not only forgive us, but help us, teach us to keep very short accounts, to be very intimate with him, very close, that he, in fact, might fill and control us. And we ask, Lord, that you indeed might give us an ear like Samuel, open, alive and quick to hear and to respond, whatever he whispers, whatever he prompts, for us to say, yes, Lord, I will. We ask this in Jesus' name and for the honour and glory of the triune God. Amen.